Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. The worst of times. Ever since the 18th century, when French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau pondered what primitive life must have been like for early man, there's been no shortage of romantics who've imagined that early humans lived at one with nature. There was, wrote Rousseau, nothing more gentle than man in his primitive state. A little more recently, Geoffrey Miller, author of Spent, portrays life for our early hunter-gatherer ancestors as a sort of rural camping trip. One endless summer adventure, rather like an ancient version of Swallows and Amazons. The reality would have been more like Lord of the Flies. The 20th century, you might imagine, was a uniquely bloody era in human history, with world wars and genocide. However violent it was, you'd have stood a much greater chance of being a victim of violence if you lived in any previous century. Scientists have studied skeletal remains from the prehistoric past from different locations around the world. The results suggest that in pre-state societies there were extraordinarily high levels of violence. In Nubia, between 12,000 BC and 10,000 BC, over half of all skeletal remains show signs of a violent death. In parts of India, between 2140 BC and 850 BC, over a third seem to have perished through conflict. The evidence of human savagery is grim and unrelenting. Among some North American tribes in pre-Columbian times, there are estimated to have been a thousand deaths from violence for every hundred thousand people per year. Among societies without a state, the average homicide rate was 500 per 100,000 per year. Almost 60% of those who died in South Dakota in the 1300s were, it would seem, killed as a consequence of warfare and violence. To put this into perspective, that would have made these pre-industrial societies more than twice as bloody places to be as either Germany or Russia during the turmoil of the 20th century. Rousseau was wrong. Life in prehistory was, as the 17th century English thinker Thomas Hobbes put it, poor, nasty, brutish and short. It's wishful thinking to believe otherwise. But that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of wishful thinkers around who, like Rousseau, imagine a non-existent Italy in the past. One brilliant illustration of wishful thinking about our prehistoric past came with the discovery of the remains of Otzi, the so-called Iceman, high up in an alpine glacier on the Italian-Austrian border in 1991. The discovery of this ancient corpse, preserved in the ice for around 4,000 years, prompted all sorts of speculation about what kind of Arcadian lifestyle he might have enjoyed. But Otzi was not some sort of prehistoric hippie enjoying a full-on organic existence. Once researchers got around to examining his remains, properly, a darker story started to emerge. In 2001, a decade after his discovery, Otzi underwent a CT scan and an arrow was found embedded in his back. He had head injuries and died from violence. Further investigation showed traces of human blood on his weapons, indicating he might have killed a couple of people shortly before he met his own demise. Otzi killed, and then in turn had been killed. 
a war of every man against every other man, to use Hobbes's famous phrase, seems a pretty good way of describing what we now know about Oatsy's last few hours of life. But it wasn't just Oatsy who occupied his last few hours that way. Extreme violence seems to have been a way of life and death for many back then. The Central African Republic today is the poorest place on the planet. The average citizen of that country has to get by on not much more than a dollar or so a day. Yet before 1800, the average person almost anywhere would have been even worse off than that. Of course, it's possible to find a small number of people at the apex of certain societies back then who were rich, at times exceedingly so, having taken wealth off everyone else. But on average, people living before modern times lived in what we would regard as grinding poverty. To get an idea of how poor most people were in the societies that preceded the modern age, think of what life must have been like for millions of people in a place like Ethiopia during the famine there only 30 years ago. It was even worse than the Central African Republic is right now. Starvation would have been a real risk. Hunger was commonplace. Chronic malnutrition was a fact of everyday life. But surely, you might think, farming must have given people a steady food source. Once people learned how to grow their own food, they would have lived quiet lives in isolated self-sufficiency. Family groups would have tended the fields, enjoying an easy-going rustic life. Actually, from the outset, life for farmers was tough. A number of historians have suggested that while our hunter-gatherer ancestors were able to forage for what they needed with relative ease, the advent of agriculture left the first farmers worse off. Supposedly a healthy, leisured, carefree existence in Eden, with everything on hand, was exchanged for a life of unrelenting toil and drudgery in the fields. This notion of farming as some kind of fool isn't just a narrative found in the book of Genesis. It's a major theme of Yuval Hariri's bestseller Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. The author Jared Diamond makes a similar point in Guns, Germs and Steel when he calls the agricultural revolution the worst mistake in the history of the human race. Farming grain, it's implied, might have given us a more dependable supply of high-calorie food, but it meant that we gave up a diet of Paleolithic purity. In place of wild fruits and nuts, with a little organic meat and fish on the side perhaps, we took up a less healthy diet, consisting of various forms of starchy stodge. Now, it's impossible to know if early farmers really did lead harder lives compared to those of their hunter-gatherer forebears. Perhaps you can only insist that hunter-gatherers had things better if you ignore the evidence of a lot of broken bone. But what is clear is that life for the first farmers was extremely difficult. For riding on the back of those that toiled in the fields were all sorts of parasitic self-interests. Harari called farming history's biggest fraud because, he suggests, although humans thought they were learning to live off other animals, various domesticated plants and animals were actually learning to live off Homo sapiens. It was, he argues, a kind of reverse takeover, with a few niche species of grain found in the Fertile Crescent spreading out to the far corners of the earth. Oryx, 
roaming the woodlands of Asia, came to occupy countless fields across the planet as cows. However, it's not so much other species that rode on the back of the first farmers, but other parasitic people. Soon after the first people discovered that they could earn a good living growing crops, others made a different discovery. They could earn a living by taking what it was that those first farmers produced. Not long after that, it was discovered that instead of simply plundering someone else's fields, resources could be extracted from farmers through a system of taxes, tolls and tyranny. The same grains that could be stored and exchanged by the first farmers could be demanded as tribute. Thus, with the agricultural revolution, came the first centralised states. Along the banks of the Euphrates, the Tigris, the Nile, the Yangtze, the Indus and the Ganges, emerged civilizations in which a caste of princes and priests lorded it over a mass of toiling peasants. Whether as serfs or slaves, those that worked in the fields were expected to hand over the lion's share of their crop to their overlords. In almost every pre-modern farming society, from medieval Europe and India to Ming China and Mexico, a strikingly similar extractive hierarchy emerges. From one generation to the next, farmers pay extortionate levels of tribute and taxation, often being left with only just enough to feed themselves and their families, in a good year. According to Steve Pinker, homicide rates in human societies tended to decline once some sort of centralising authority was established. It's arguable that with the emergence of these patrician societies, something made possible with the advent of grain farming, perhaps the rates of violence declined. Still shockingly high by our standards, this could conceivably mean at least some improvement in the human condition. Perhaps. Maybe the warrior priests at the apex of such societies did offer some measure of protection to the masses in return for all the taxes they extracted. The reality is that far from setting humankind on the road to perpetual progress, life for most within such societies must have remained pretty grim. Even if having an overlord meant you were marginally less likely to be attacked by an outsider, you still had to support and submit to someone inside at the apex of your society. Century after century, the standard of living in China, northern India, Mesopotamia and Egypt hovered slightly above or below what we call the threshold of pauperization, wrote the American anthropologist Marvin Harris in Cannibals and Kings. In such societies, total submissiveness was demanded of underlings, the supreme symbol of which was the obligation to prostrate oneself and grovel in the presence of the mighty. Typically, a farmer in Ming China or medieval India would have had to hand over between 50 and 70% of their produce. Farming, in effect, allowed farmers to be farmed. Some have suggested that the human habit of farmer farming actually led to a process of what you might call self-domestication. The first animals our ancestors domesticated were dogs, something we appear to have done before we even started farming. Farming, of course, saw us domesticate many other kinds of animals, what had previously been things that we had hunted, oryx and wild goats, sheep, wild boar, chicken-like jungle fowl. Each time humans domesticated an animal species, a certain pattern of changes occurred in the domesticated variant of the species. The skeletal remains of a domesticated animal 
always became less robust and more gracile. The teeth and horns became noticeably less pronounced. The horns of the toughest bull on a contemporary farm are nothing like those that existed on a wild auric. Infantile features, floppy ears and dogs, larger eyes, lasted longer into adulthood. Domesticated animals became much less aggressive, and from dogs to sheep, their brains seemed to have become slightly smaller. Some scientists have noticed an almost identical pattern in the human anatomy too. Compared to our archaic ancestors, our skeletal frames today are less robust. Our bodies are much less muscular, and perhaps surprisingly, our brain capacity seems slightly smaller. Whether it's possible to see all of this as evidence of our own self-domestication or otherwise, it is undoubtedly the case that a multitude of farmers over many millennia lived as more or less beasts of burden. Long after humans discovered how to grow their own high-calorie food sources, most of those that worked the land continued to live a subsistence existence. Incomes remained almost unchanged for centuries, as did life itself for most people. From what they used to shelter, to what they ate for food, from their energy supplies to their life expectancy, things stayed pretty much the same down the generations. A farmer living in Egypt or China in AD 1500 would have had a living standard almost identical to a farmer living there in 1500 BC. The lifestyle of most people living in Elizabethan England would have been in many ways remarkably similar to that of someone living in England during the early Iron Age. Humans were, as that famous 18th century pessimist Thomas Robert Malthus correctly spotted, stuck in a trap. Every time there was a technological innovation of some sort, iron tools for irrigation, windmills or watermills, new kinds of crop or new lands to farm, output increased. But so too did the number of people. Output per person remained essentially the same. As economic historian Gregory Clark puts it, in the pre-industrial world, sporadic technological advance produced people, not wealth. The implication of this is that humans lived, for the most part, on just enough to get by. When food output fell for whatever reason, some people would have simply starved. The grim logic of this meant that one of the only ways that a society could achieve an increase in output per person, albeit temporarily, was if a significant percentage of the population actually died off. This is precisely what happened, for example, in England during the Black Death, when the population fell by almost half. Output per person increased afterwards, since those that survived were left farming the more productive land. Despite all the derision that was heaped on the poor Reverend Malthus, ever since he wrote his essay in 1798, his analysis, up until that moment, was basically correct. For most of human history, until about 1800, we were indeed stuck in a state of Malthusian misery. Today, someone born in Britain can expect to live until they're over 80. In China, they can expect to be around until they're 76. Even in a less developed country like Ethiopia, life expectancy is now 65 and rising fast. 
Had you, however, happened to be born in a farming community in Europe, Egypt or India, over the 3,000 years before about 1800, you would on average have been lucky to make it to the age of 30. Infant mortality was staggeringly high at around 30%. Even if you survived childhood, you would have had siblings around you who didn't. Childhood would have been marred by constant hunger. You would have been malnourished, to the extent you would have been significantly shorter than your modern self had you made it to adulthood. If you were a woman, when you made it to adulthood, if not a bit before, you would have produced a succession of babies, each one exposing you to an appallingly high risk of death during childbirth. Whatever your gender, if you fell ill or had an accident, there were no modern medicines or anaesthetics to ease your pain or suffering. Yet around about the time that Malthus published what has to be the most ill-timed essay ever written, something changed. Output started to rise faster than the population grew. Today there are over six times more people living on the planet than there were in 1798. Yet output per person is up 16-fold. Malthusian misery slowly started to recede in certain societies. Why? If you're interested in some of the ideas that I've been discussing, please do have a read of my book, Progress vs. Parasites. It's published by Head of Zeus and available on Amazon. I hope you enjoy this episode and future episodes. Thank you for listening.